right. Man, I am so thankful. God is so good to us. And uh, I am so excited to be here, thankful for this time of worship. We're in Revelation chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, uh, go to Revelation chapter 7. Been working through uh, the book of Revelation, and uh, today we're in Revelation chapter uh, number 7 as we walk through this book. And the question is, who is able to stand? Uh, who is able to stand? Uh, last several weeks, we've asked questions, and that's the question uh, of the day. That's the question being answered in this chapter. Uh, in fact, when you're reading through the book of Revelation, uh, where we are is we are in the middle of the tribulation period. We are in the midst of uh, what the Bible calls the tribulation period. Uh, if you go back and you walk through and, and, and to catch us up to speed with where we are and, and, and what exactly is happening as this seventh chapter begins, uh, you go back to the beginning in Revelation chapter number 1. Uh, and in Revelation chapter number 1, verse number 19, uh, there's an outline given of the book of Revelation. Uh, in fact, he says, hey, I want you to write down uh, what you have seen. And so it begins with chapter number one with, with John, the revelator, and he's writing uh, a vision of Jesus Christ seated on the throne, high and lifted up, highly exalted. And so we read about uh, this throne, and we read about uh, Jesus Christ, the things that are seen, uh, and then the things which are, the things which are. And so he writes the next two chapters to the church. And so the age in which you and I are living, that's the age which is, or the things which are. And we have these seven letters to specific churches, uh, but today we are still in the age of grace. We are still living in what we would call the age of grace, the church age. And so we're still living in that period of time. And so in chapters 2 and 3, we have letters recorded to the churches. And then at the end of chapter number 3, uh, what is not recorded in the book of Revelation, but we pick it up in other pieces of scripture. In fact, Thessalonians speaks uh, uh, a lot about the rapture. Uh, and so the rapture is not the return of Jesus Christ. What the rapture is, the rapture is when Jesus Christ calls his church, his bride, home. We meet him in the air. We meet him in the air. It's, it's, it's sudden. It's unannounced. It's as a thief is in the night. And so when you're reading through Revelation, what happens is after chapter number 3 and the church age, the scene shifts from earth back to heaven. And so chapters 4 and chapter number 5, what we see is worship happening in the presence of God Almighty in heaven. And, and, and those worship services really are centered around two things. In chapter number 4, what you'll find is you will find worship that's centered around God as creator. Jesus Christ created all things. In fact, the Gospel of John tells us, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in the beginning, He created all things, and nothing has been created that has been created. God Almighty, Jesus Christ, created all things. And so they worship Him because He's unique. There's nobody like Him. He's the Creator. He was in the beginning. He is holy. 
And so in chapter 4, we see that. And then in chapter 5, uh, we see the one who is worthy. And so they, they worship him because he's worthy. He was the slain that was, he was the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world. And so we have this worship happening in chapters number 4 and in chapters number 5. And then all of a sudden, we have the father who is holding the scroll, of the title deed to the earth, and, and, and Jesus Christ. They said, who is able to take it? Who's the one that owns? the title deed to the earth and Jesus Christ is the only one worthy because he redeemed back to God that which was lost through the fall of mankind. He purchased it with his blood, the spotless lamb of God that was slain. And he takes the title deed and it's sealed with seven seals and he begins to open those. And so last week what we saw in chapter number six was the beginning of the tribulation period, so the scene, scene shifted back from heaven and the worship that was happening to what's going on on the planet Earth. And so when you go back and step back into what's happening on the planet Earth is you have just had the rapture and the church now disappears and the church is with their father in heaven and on Earth. All of a sudden we have this period of time we call the tribulation. And during the tribulation, it's a seven-year period of time that we can read through Scripture and find out that it is a, a, a seven-year period of time that begins, in fact, with a peace treaty that happens because part of uh, the opening of the seals, we see the events begin to unfold. So you have the rapture. You have the ensuing chaos that is caused and created by the rapture. Christians worldwide vanish instantaneously, immediately. And so it leaves the world longing for somebody to give us an answer. We need peace on the earth. And so he begins to open the seals last week. And he opens six of the seven seals. And as he's opening these seals, what we have is in the very first seal that's open is we have a, a conqueror who ascends to the throne without even a fight. Why? Because people are looking for an answer and somebody ascends. And so we're introduced to the Antichrist even in the first seal as it is open. And the second seal says, man, it is going to be a time of bloodshed. Imagine the looting. Imagine when people can't get food and they begin to fight and they begin to kill one another. And so we have bloodshed that's happening during that period of time. We have a serious famine that comes with the opening of the third seal. We have a famine that sweeps across the land. In fact, there's food shortages happening. And so then it's, we have death that follows that, which obviously death is happening around the world in chapter number four. And it comes in a lot of different ways, but part of the way in which it comes is through even the starvation of people. I mean, it's a time like never before. And then the fifth seal is opened up, and with the fifth seal, we see martyrs. In fact, people will be saved during that tribulation period, but it's going to cost them their life to follow Jesus Christ. They're going to be killed. There's going to be many martyrs during that period of time, during the tribulation period. And then the sixth seal gets open, and when the sixth seal gets open, what happens is there is worldwide chaos. In fact, it's, a, it, it's, it's all of a sudden we have platonic shifting, we have volcanic eruptions, we have battles, we have a world that's shaken worldwide with a mighty earthquake, and people are running for their lives. And so in the end of that chapter, after the sixth seal, the very last phrase of chapter number six, we see people of every shape, of every size, of every color, of every nationality, they're heading for the hills. It doesn't matter if they're rich or poor, young or old, they're saying, man, who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? 
In chapter 7, you would think that as you continue to read, that we would have the seventh seal being open in succession because it's been rapid succession to this point. But we get to chapter 7, the question's been asked, who is able to stand before the judgment of God? Chapter 7 begins, and I believe he answers the question. Beginning in verse number 1, after this... I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And then it goes on from there. But he's just simply saying, hey, he gives us this picture of what's happening. The winds of God's wrath are blowing on the planet. But he says, hey, hold back for a minute. And he says the four angels, the four angels, and the four angels are simply agents that God has used to bring about his judgment on the planet. And he says the four angels are standing at the four corners, and some people will look at that. In fact, many critics have looked at that and said, see there, they don't even know what they're talking about. The earth's not flat and it's not square. And he's talking about four corners. It's an idiom being used. You know what an idiom is? It's when we use language to describe something that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you describe it. For example, what's an idiom? An idiom would be, you're in a thunderstorm. You ever heard this one before? It's raining cats and dogs out there. Do you think we lost our mind to think that, man, there's some furry animals falling from the heavens out there? No, it's an idiom that we use. And that's exactly what he's doing here. The four corners are just simply the four points on a compass saying from the north, south, east, and west, all of the winds, all of God's judgment, there is a calm in the storm for a moment. He says, stop for a minute. And then he goes on and he says, and then I looked and I saw towards the rising of the sun. And so from the Isle of Patmos is where John is receiving this revelation. If you look towards the rising of the sun, that would be toward the east. And toward the east would be the city of Jerusalem. And he looks over there and he sees an angel coming. And he's coming with a signet ring. He's going to put a sign on people. Well, what is that sign and what does it look like? So he goes on from there. And he says, it's going to be a sign on my bondservants. The Bible says in verse number three, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. You know what's interesting is when you talk about bondservants, you know what a bondservant is? It's, it's, it's a word that, it's doulos. You know, what a, you know what a bondservant is? A bondservant is not just a common slave. In other words, it's not a slave by force. That is not what a doulos is. That is not what a servant is. But rather, a servant of God is one who has experienced freedom. They're a slave who has experienced freedom, but they got to a point where they said, no, I would rather submit to the lordship of my master. And so back in the day, you would have literal doulases. You would have bondservants of people who had their freedom, but yet they said, I choose to be under the lordship of my master because he is good. We just sang about that. 
<laughs> because he is good. And so they would take and they would put a mark on their ear that would permanently set them up such that people could look at them and say, hey, they are a bondservant. And it's a slave by choice. By choice, not by force. And so you know what it's saying? It's saying, hey, people that are followers of Jesus Christ are there because of a decision they made somewhere along the way. I choose to surrender my life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's who they were. So who are these people? Well, I call them the sealed missionaries. The sealed missionaries, beginning in verse number four. And so the Bible says this. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tri- you know, it's interesting, and I, and I just want to touch this real quick. I don't want to linger long here. Uh, but a lot of times what we do with Revelation is, is, is we use a lot of pneumatology. We look at numbers and say, well, this number means this, and that number means that. And some people would say, you know, the numbers that are involved in the 144,000 are... Three is the number of divinity and, and, and the Godhead. Four is the number of earth. And ten is the number of completion. Three times four is twelve times ten. And it's like, I don't know about all that. All I'm saying is that there's 144,000 and that's how God decided to do it. <laughs> Y'all okay with that one? <laughs> In other words, sometimes we get caught up. And I understand and I'm not making light. Because I believe that there is a time and a place. He's simply saying, hey... The nation of Israel, there is the salvation of the nation that takes place during the tribulation period because it was prophesied back in Zechariah. So watch what he says, and we're going to go there in just a minute. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. He's talking about God's chosen people. And the question would be, well, who are they and why were they sealed? Who are they and why were they sealed? Well, they're God's chosen people. They're the nation of Jews. That's who these people are. Are. And so God seals 144,000 of them, seals 144,000 of them because it's a time for the salvation of the nation. He's dealing with his chosen people. He is not through with the Jews. Zechariah chapter 12, verses number 10 and following. The Bible says it like this. It was prophesied, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace And of supplication, so that they will look on me, whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him, as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. 
in that day. There will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadadiram in the plain of Megiddo. And the land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. Chapter 13 jumps down to verse number 8. It will come about in the land, declares the Lord, that two parts will be cut off and perish by but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. And they will call on my name, and I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. There's a salvation of the nation, and they will receive a seal. We're not talking simply salvation, but those that receive a seal. Now, the question oftentimes is asked would be this. Well, are we talking about uh, the salvation of the entire nation? To which I would say yes, but here we're talking about a seal of heaven, a seal from God to be placed on 144,000. And so when you look at the nation of Jews today, for example, the nation of Jews today is somewhere in the ballpark of around 15 million people worldwide. If you go over to the nation of Israel and you look at Israel, you'll find somewhere just under 7 million Jewish people. And so what I'm saying is I believe that during that time, many more than 144 will be saved. I think that many more than 144,000 will be saved. In fact, that might possibly be a number that says that the nation will be saved. But I believe also that when you're talking about this seal, why the seal? Because we're going to get to why the seal in a minute. But I believe that there will be 144,000 who are sealed, possibly more than that saved. The nation saved, 144,000 sealed. Why? Because there's a job to be done. So what is the seal? Well, they received the seal in antiquity. When you're talking about kings of antiquity, what they would do is they would take their signet rings and they would stamp their seal on official documents so that they are recognized as having the authority and the property of the king. For example, if you go back to the book of Esther, Esther chapter number 8, and in verse number 8, the Bible says it like this. In Esther chapter 8, and in verse number 8, uh, now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. And so it carries authority uh, as God's property. It's the king's possession, and therefore it's under the king's protection. So the Jews, 144,000, received this sign from this angel that comes down there. What is the sign? Well, we're not exactly sure, although Revelation chapter number 14 makes reference to it. In Revelation 14, in verse number 1, the Bible says it like this. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. So we talking tattoos on the forehead? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what the sign is. I'm not exactly sure. It's possible that it's not necessarily something that's visibly seen, although what is happening is they are sealed and signed by the king of kings. Why? Because there's a task for them to do. 
In fact, when you look throughout Scripture, what we have seen is God's sign on people. God's saying, hey, listen, here's my servant Job, for example. When you're talking about Job, here's my servant Job. He's blameless and upright. He fears God and he shuns evil. God's having a conversation at that time with the devil. All right? He says he fears God. He shuns evil. And the devil says, well, of course, but take everything from him. And we'll see if he still worships you. And, and do you remember what God said? He said, okay, but don't touch, don't touch him. In other words, God Almighty put limits on what the devil could touch. And I believe that what he's doing here is he's sealing 144,000 such that the Antichrist, who's been busy massacring anybody that calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they end up dead. But there's 144,000 that he says, I'm going to seal these 144,000. Why? Because I believe that what they are is they're going to be missionaries. I know that we have two that we'll read about eventually. But I believe there's an incredible mission force that he's saying, hey, I want the gospel to be preached to the ends of the earth. In fact, the Bible says over in uh, uh, Matthew chapter number 24, and in Matthew 24, verses number uh, 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 14, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And I believe that it is these 144,000 that take that gospel to the ends of the world. And so we have God's plan ultimately being carried out by the Jews. When you go back to Genesis chapter number 12 and in verse number 3, God enters into a covenant with Abraham. Do you remember the covenant with Abraham? He said, hey, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And, and, and obviously, we know that through the lineage of Abraham, through the Jews, came our Messiah, Jesus Christ. And what a blessing it has been for everybody on the planet. However, in his first coming, the Jews didn't take the gospel to the nations because they rejected him. But I think during that tribulation period, he's saying, hey, my people are going to come back and we're going to have a massive, massive awakening among the Jewish people and they're going to carry the gospel to the ends of the world through the tribulation with supernatural signage from God Almighty on their foreheads. Don't touch my people. He's limiting who the Antichrist can touch. It's a special people, and it is a special purpose to carry the gospel to the ends of the world, the greatest mission team the world has ever seen. And I believe that it's during that time that we will have the greatest, the greatest awakening ever to take place on the planet. We've seen awakenings, but I believe that the greatest awakening is yet to be had. And I believe that it happens during that tribulation period when these 144,000 are sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. There will be mass massacres of Christians all around the world. However, many, many will be saved during that period of time. So not only, not only do we have the sealed missionaries, but we have the saved multitudes. Who is able to stand in that day? The sealed missionaries, but also the saved multitudes. The Bible goes on to talk about what's happening in the midst of the tribulation period. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, we're talking gazillions of people, which no one could count, 
from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Verse number 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on her faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and honor and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered and said to me, hey, uh, these who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and, and, and where have they come from? In verse number 14, John was standing there having a vision and John in 14 says, my Lord, you know. <laughs> he said, I don't have a clue, but you do. And then he says, and, and he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them and they will hunger no more and they'll thirst no more and they, the sun won't beat down on them from uh, heaven nor any heat for the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to the springs of the water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. I believe the greatest awakening that it will happen is still yet to come. Why? Why would it happen like that during those... Why not during the days of grace? Why not during the days in which we're living today? And, and, and I believe that the reason is simply because they've come face to face with the truth and they cannot deny it any longer. The reality. The reality. I mean, for example, for example, you ever flown before? Now, many of us have flown before. You get on that airplane, and the uh, first thing that comes on there is telling you, hey, uh, here's how you secure yourself in case of an emergency. If the oxygen mask falls down, put it on yourself first. You know, I'm telling you, if the oxygen mask falls down, I'm going to die of a heart attack. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what happens when they talk like that? Watch what happens. Everybody's just hanging, hanging. Man, I'm, I'm listening, <laughs> but, but a lot of folks, just, they're just hanging. But if you were 30,000 feet and that airplane started shifting back and forth and shaking and diving, you'd say, hey, I'm ready to listen. What I need to do, what do I need to do? And I believe that's what's happening you see, we're living in a day today where the church says, hey, we don't want to really take people to reality. We don't want to talk about hell. The reality is, if you are lost, you are one heartbeat from an eternity in hell. And God helped the churches get back to sharing the truth of the gospel and not just saying, well, it's all lovey-dovey and it's all fun and games because the fact of the matter is it is a scary thing to stand before the judgment seat of God Almighty. 
It's scary. And you know what the Bible says in the book of Proverbs? The Bible says in Proverbs chapter number nine and in verse number 10, it says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God, not the love of God, but the fear of God. People gotta know how much God loves them. Oh, absolutely. We want people to know how much God loves you, but let me tell you something. You will stand before a holy God one day. And so the church doesn't proclaim that message anymore. How many times have you heard this statement made? Man, when I grew up, I grew up, and there was hellfire and brimstone preaching. Remember that? You ever, you ever heard that saying? You know, there's hellfire and brimstone. I'm not saying at all preaching needs to be just bashing people over the head. That's not what I'm suggesting. But what I am saying is that, listen, there needs to be some hellfire and brimstone preaching. Because the fact of the matter is, hell is hot. And God is good. And Jesus makes all the difference in the world. And so there's got to come a point in your life when you realize I'm a sinner and I've fallen short of God's glory. And if I've never called on his name, I've got no answer. Who is able to stand? Who is able to stand before God Almighty? That's the question that was asked. Who is able to stand? And you know what he says? He says, those who have been washed in the blood. Those who have been cleansed in the blood. Who are robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And my sin separates me from a holy God. And we're living in a day where people say, man, I'm not that bad. In fact, I, I, I'll even admit that I'm, I, I've sinned. Most people will even go there. I've sinned. But I believe that I'm a moral person and that I can be good enough and God's just going to love me. To which I would say, absolutely, God loves you. Look at the cross. There's people that say, man, you mean to tell me that God would send somebody to hell? He didn't send you to hell. He sent his son so that you wouldn't go to hell. But if you reject the free gift that he has given, you will go to hell forever. And that's the facts. He's holy, he's righteous, and he will hold us accountable one day when he begins holding the world accountable and judging sin and the world's falling apart, people will say, this is real, God is real, God save me. And they'll respond by the multitudes in that day. But why wait? Why wait? Don't delay today. The Bible says that the multitudes are seen by John standing before the throne and they are ecstatic because of their salvation. Do you know the Bible says in Luke chapter number 15 and in verse number 10, it says, man, there, there's, there's just joy, there's excitement, there's singing in the presence of God Almighty, in the presence of the angels that are around the throne of God because souls got saved. Sometimes I wonder if we've gotten over how amazing God's grace is that saved me and saved you. I'm there worshiping the King of Kings. They're shouting in his presence. There is incredible worship taking place. There's two elements, in fact, that's recorded in these verses of Scripture. 
if you read through there, one of them would be when you're talking about worshiping the king of kings is singing in his presence. Man, they're singing because, wow, he put a song in my heart when he saved my soul. But there's also serving. You know, they're serving me. And I think about the people today that they would say, man, I'm saved. But yet they never sing and they never serve. Hey, let me, let me ask this question. Can I ask a question? Thank you, James. Here's a question. Have you ever been to a boring worship service? It's not a trick question. <laughs> Can I tell you something? If it were boring, then it weren't worship. That's Jackson County. It wasn't. If it were boring, then it wasn't worship. Because there's nothing boring to a person that recognizes I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, and from the waters he lifted me. Now safe am I. Love lifted me. Love lifted me. That's what he did for me, and that's what he did for you. Are you excited about your salvation? That's just the question i got to ask you. Are you excited about your salvation? Good night. Is not God good to us? Who is able to stand? Those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And so today the simple question is this. Are you washed in the blood? Ever been a time in your life when you said, man, I am a sinner, and I've fallen short of God's glory. What do you do with your sin? I mean, that, that's the question. What do you do with your sin? Your sin separates you. The wages of sin is death. There's a, there's a price to be paid. God is just. He's just. He's loving, but he's just. And so for those that reject the free gift of salvation, the blood of Jesus Christ, that paid the price for you, if I reject that, one day I stand before a holy, righteous God who is just. So the question must be asked, if God is just and I stand before him and I have sinned, but I have rejected the payment for my sin that he paid on the cross, how do I stand? You know how you stand? Guilty. Guilty. And the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. God loves you, and he loves me, and that's the reason for the cross. Jesus shed his blood for you because he longs for a relationship that begins today and lasts for all of eternity. I'm not saved by my works. <laughs> I'm saved by grace through faith. In Jesus Christ. You ever called on his name? If you haven't, may today be that day for you. Call on his name. Call on his name. Join me for a time of prayer. We're going to pray. And after we pray, we'll have a song that's sung. But after that song is sung, if you are here this morning and you would say, man, you know what? 
I've never called on the name of Jesus Christ, and I'm not saved. But today, I want Jesus Christ to be my Lord. Man, I want Jesus Christ to be my Savior. Then I'm inviting you, as soon as this song is sung, to come down here, and we would love the opportunity to talk. Oh, God, I thank you for your love. I thank you, God, for your amazing grace, for your mercies that we've all experienced every single day. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the blood. God, your word says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So today, we say thank you for the blood. (laughs) And God, we're excited because we know that We have a risen Savior. God, that you conquered death in the grave. You're with the Father right now even. And God, one of these days, we're going to see you. And Lord Jesus, even here in this text, your word says you're going to wipe away the tears. God, that in in a twinkling of an eye, in, in a moment, in a moment... God, our heartaches are going to turn to hallelujahs. (laughs) Oh, God, what a day that's going to be. Lord, today, please, I'm praying for everybody in this place, everybody online. Father, if they've never called on your name, oh, God, that your spirit would knock. God, please open eyes. God, please bring to life that which is dead and perishing because that's only something you can do. Oh, God, thank you for this moment today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.